And some friends of mine invited me to do a guided psilocybin or magic mushroom experience. And at first I said no, and they, they kind of persuaded me that it would be good for Hello, welcome to the Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions. I've got some exciting things in the works that I'm looking forward to sharing with everybody here in the next, well, I don't know, a couple weeks or so. We might end up doing a webcast about it, or uh, we'll probably end up doing talking about it some on the podcast. We're in the middle of doing some research and surveys around the role and the use and implementation of virtual service delivery methods, primarily in the musculoskeletal and physiotherapy space. So if you're interested in learning more about that, or if you want to participate in the survey, it's quick, I don't know, 15, 20 question survey about using things like remote therapeutic monitoring or asynchronous telehealth or synchronous virtual visits, um, shoot us an email at info at rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll get you a link to it. Um, But it is pretty interesting so far. I mean, we're we're only a a week or so into doing the the study here, but it looks like 92.9% of respondents thus far report having taken or enrolled in continuing education courses related to specifically remote therapeutic monitoring and other virtual service delivery models. So I know maybe two or three years ago, telehealth was a big deal or it became a big deal because we needed a way as clinicians to interact and to see patients despite not being able to see them in the clinic because of the pandemic and some of the restrictions. And there was always this thought by at least some of the clients that I was working with at the time of, oh, this is one of those things that we're gonna use during this season. And then after that, we'll go back to doing everything in clinic again. And then there were some other forward thinking, more forward thinking clinicians and organizations that really thought, and looked at the situation and said, really what this is forcing us to do is adopt technology and tools and force multipliers, if you would, that are already there and developed and have the ability for us to extend our reach and improve access and improve patient engagement and clinical outcomes without a whole lot of extra costs. And in fact, some of these tools can add revenue to organizations. So I think that's kind of where we've fallen now after the dust has settled looking at the landscape, specifically my world, which is the musculoskeletal rehabilitation and pain realm. In my world, there is a a great recognition that these tools have the ability to really improve clinical outcomes, patient engagement, and even revenue metrics and business metrics for the organizations that employ them. So it's interesting to see kind of the upswing where now you've got you know nine out of 10 clinicians saying that they're 
taking courses or learning, actively learning about how to implement and the best way to implement virtual service delivery in their practice. So again, interesting. We'll see what becomes of that survey. Again, we'll, we'll share that either on a webcast or maybe another podcast episode. Maybe we'll do a video. This week, we are taking a bit of a divergent course on the podcast. Instead of, I know the last couple episodes have been on entrepreneurship, on building uh, resilient businesses, diversifying revenue, all of that kind of thing. This week, we are talking with Matt Zeman about the use of psychedelics in clinical practice, specifically for the mental health side of things. Now, I will admit I'm a very skeptical individual whenever somebody reaches out to me about something along these, this nature, right? Um, uh, maybe a, a year and a half ago, we had somebody on uh, talking about herbalist uh, care for common conditions and chronic management. And I always approach these types of conversations with some skepticism, especially when you're talking about things like illicit substances. Um, so I bring this conversation really as not so much as a, an endorsement of this is what I think is amazing and what we should be doing, but really as an own exercise in my own professional career of just having conversations with people that might have divergent opinions and really listening, coming to the, coming to the table with a dialogue. And I did ask a lot of questions around kind of safety and protocols and you know vulnerabilities if you take these medicines or in, go into one of these encounters with maybe somebody who has nefarious intent or, or how do you guard yourself against some of that. I think some of Matt's answers were pretty surprising to me in that I was not aware that there were big institutions here in the United States even sitting on very large grants to study the use of psychedelics specifically for treating things like mental health conditions like PTSD, or um, we talked a little bit about microdosing and what that is. And it's one of those things, probably because the topic is so taboo. Whenever we talk psychedelics, people immediately think of, you know, LSD or um, just drug culture in general and and all of that, that it, it is very difficult to have a reasoned, rational conversation because you're fighting all of these cognitive biases. I'm, I'm the same way. When I was having this conversation with Matt, I had to check myself a few times to make sure that I was actually listening to what he was saying and then responding to that instead of asking leading questions or kind of trying to steer the conversation to where I wanted it to go. Now, um, again, this is one of those topics where I am not an expert in psychedelics. This is one of those interviews that they reached out to us to come onto the show. And at first I said, ah, no. And I kind of put them off for a while. And then I thought, you know what? Like, let's have a conversation about it. I know most of the people in this audience are treating folks with musculoskeletal issues and, and running organizations, maybe running tech companies involved with, you know, remote patient monitoring and patient engagement software. Um, so kind of what's the point? Like, how do we, how do we tie this in? And I think the reality is for this show anyway, so the Better Outcomes show, all of the episodes and all of the conversations I, I try to have really point to what does this mean for clinical care and how can we humanize the healthcare experience through this? And I think specifically for this topic, when you, 
I've been in clinical interactions where someone has told me that they, that they self-medicate with illicit substances. And I think as clinicians, that disclosure on the part of a patient in our clinic is really the opportunity for them to see that we are truly empathetic and non-judgmental. And I wanted to extend that same uh, non-judgment and courtesy into this conversation with another healthcare professional about this topic, even though I don't fully understand it, I'll admit that, and I have my own reservations about it. Um, Again, maybe I'm just rambling at this point, but let's dive right into the conversation uh, with Matt about the use of psychedelics in healthcare and specifically in clinical practice under the guidance of a trained and or licensed uh, clinical provider. Well, hey, Matt, welcome to the show. How are you? Rafi, I'm doing well. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. I'm excited about touching into this, what can be a very controversial topic. But before before we do that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what got you to what you're doing now, and maybe even mention the book a little bit, and then we'll kind of dive into the conversation at hand about uh, psychedelics and their their use. Happy to do all of the above, Rafi. So I started, I was not a drug user and um, not even a big drinker. And some friends of mine invited me to do a guided psilocybin or magic mushroom experience. And at first I said no, and they, they kind of persuaded me that it would be good for me. So I'm all right. With that, I went ahead and, and embarked. Um, and it completely changed the way I look and interact with the world. In this, in this initial experience, I reconnected with my mom who died when she was 49. I was uh, 22. I had a number of insights into things I was doing with my life and with my relationships that weren't serving me. And uh, I emerged from this experience and said, oh my gosh, I, I need to know more about this. What happened? Ended up going back to school to get a master's in psychology and neuroscience at a, at a relatively late age. And then ended up writing a book called Psychedelics for Everyone. And in this book, I try to uh, not only tell some personal stories of my experience, but put a lot of information about psychedelics in general, what they're used for, and then kind of molecule or compound by compound, um, what people might want to consider if they're considering using those medicines. Yeah, because I mean, you you hear it every now and then. It's almost one of those like fringe things like, oh, psychedelics, you're one of those crackpots. So I guess let's just start with a very, very foundation, like how you define what is a psychedelic, um, are they addictive? What what are the what are the the harms around them? Obviously, there's legality issues, right? Like they're illegal in a lot of places and stuff like that. But let's start just start with the basics. Like, what all, what quant constitutes a psychedelic, and then are there any uh, precautions that we need to be aware of? And then we'll dive into like why you might want to use them. <laughs> sure. So lot, lots of questions baked in there. Um, when we talk about a psychedelic, we're talking about a mind opening, um, and oftentimes a heart opening medicine. So here in the United States, the only legal psychedelic is ketamine. Um, okay. It's been an FDA-approved drug since the 70s. It's been used off-label, as many medicines are, for mental health since, I think, 74. And um, often used for depression, anxiety, OCD, eating disorders, substance use. Um, when people, though, typically think about psychedelics, they're thinking about LSD, magic mushrooms, ayahuasca, those types of psychedelics, which uh, which are not yet legal here in the States. Um, although psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms, and um, MDMA, which a lot of us knew as ecstasy when we were uh, 
younger. Those have both been given FDA breakthrough therapy designations, and uh, the MDMA has finished its phase three clinical trials, and psilocybin is, is seeming on the home stretch. Okay. All right. And what do these, so what do they do? Like, what is it? I guess they're physiologically, what are they doing to the person who takes them? I guess we can start from there and then kind of talk about how that impacts their, their psychology or, or, or whatnot, their, their perception of reality. Right. Absolutely. And let's also, while we're doing this, let's also address your question about addiction, because with the exception of ketamine and MDMA, uh, most of these psychedelic medicines are really not addictive. They're anti-addictive, um, which means in in like animal studies, when animals are given a choice of hitting the button for food or hitting the button for the drug, they're going to take food in in most cases. So uh, just something to be aware of with ketamine. Again, it's the only legal one, but it is something that people, it's, it's a powerful drug and used recreationally, it can lead to addiction. So it's something for people to be aware of. Um, so then you ask, what do these medicines do? So let's let's talk about that from a couple of different standpoints. First, let's talk about kind of what's happening in your brain when you take a psychedelic. So it's going to do a few things. It's going to, and if you think about you, as we get older, we get into kind of repetitive thoughts. And yeah. we literally, behind the scenes, our, our neurotransmitters, our neurons are firing in specific patterns. And we went from being a child where there's a whole bunch of neurons firing to, as we got older, less and less neurons are firing. But when you take a psychedelic, a bunch more that used to fire are going to fire again. Your brain kind of comes alive. And that literally is like your brain remembering how it used to think. And it can knock us off of kind of the patterns that we've developed as we've grown older. Second thing that's happening is we have we all have this thing called a default mode network. So think of this as like your inner narrator, the voice is, oh, Rafi, you're not good enough, or you can't write a book, or your, your podcast is never going to work, and all these negative things that are t- telling us all the time. But with the psychedelic, it's going to quiet that down. That's going to all go away. And that, for a lot of people, is like, wow, the weight of the world was lifted off my shoulders. I can feel it. And then for many people, the third thing that happens is there's some type of connection both to um, nature and other people and to a higher power, whatever that means for that person. And that also, it's like, okay, so I'm not alone in this world. I can feel safe and loved in this experience that I'm living. And I can think about what I want to do next differently than I did before the psychedelic. And you put all of that together, and it's a pretty powerful technology for, for change, for spiritual connection, for, um, for humanity. So then, the, then, and the last thing I'll say on this is um, it's not a cure. So let's not think of it like we think about, oh, you're going to take this medicine. It's going to cure you from whatever you're going to do. No, it's a catalyst. It's going to open up your mind, make you feel a lot of love, show you a new way of thinking. And then what's really important is what happens after that you have some type of integration practice where you can put these thoughts and ideas into reality, into this uh, consensus reality in which we live. Does that all make sense, Rafi? Does that does that resonate with you? Yeah, yeah, it, I'm, it's making sense for sure. So I get, I get the idea. I'm glad you made the distinction of like, this is not a cure-all. It's not like you're taking it for pain and then you don't have pain anymore, but it's really, it's a, as you said, it's a mind-altering or mind-opening experience. And almost, I could see it I mean, after hearing you explain it, like, oh, this... I could see this being used in something like maybe behavioral health or um, maybe areas of of depression or something like that, giving somebody a little bit of a 
of a dose, if you would, that helps them open up their their mind, the the world around them, and maybe experiencing th things differently. And then they can take that experience back to maybe a counselor or a psychologist and kind of put the plan in place. Am I am I off base with that? I think you're right on it. And it can be a licensed person like a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a therapist, or it can be an unlicensed coach that's just familiar with this uh with this practice. Um, but having someone to help process and in, in many cases, even having a community um that you can return to is is helpful, but at least someone for the integration practice. You know, you talked about um behavioral or, or let's let's talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. So yeah, I saw you've done some work in that area. So talk to me about it's, it. Yeah. I mean, we so there's a group called the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, which is uh, founded by Rick Doblin. And they have been working since 1986 to re-legalize MDMA. And they've raised, I don't know, $150 million, lots and lots of money to go through the drug legalization process here in America. And they just finished the phase three clinical trials. So now let's let's put for you and for the listeners, let's imagine a veteran, a first responder, a victim of sexual assault, where they've tried everything. They've tried talk therapy, they've tried the existing antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications nothing's worked. So they have what's called treatment-resistant post-traumatic stress disorder. So nothing's worked. They have been put through a series of therapy and three MDMA sessions. And in these phase three clinical trials, heavily regulated, heavily monitored, 67% no longer qualify as having PTSD at the end of this. Oh, wow. It's a huge number. So what happened to them? It's everything we just talked about. It's the it's the shame, blame, and guilt goes away. They're able to look at these experiences and realize, okay, these experiences happened to me, but they don't define me. They're able to think in a way that they weren't able to think. They're able to process, and then they're able to move forward. And that's incredible for people who have not had a uh, an option. There's been nothing else um, until this. So it's so MDMA really should be legalized in America across the country within two years which is, which is incredible. Yeah. And then I guess, so I got a lot of questions shooting through my mind. My first one is like, okay, where are people like you learning about this kind of stuff? Because obviously if, if it's illegal, like it's very difficult to get access, not just to the, the substances themselves, but, you know, treatment protocols and, you know, the dosing and how it works, the what would make it work in a clinical setting, right? So where do people learn about this? Is this something that's been going on maybe overseas and other unregulated areas and now they're coming back to the US or, you know, I, I guess what's the deal? <laughs> yeah, so it's a two-part answer. It's, what's wild, I did not know this. So psychedelics became illegal in America with what was called the Controlled Substances Act yes. of 1970. So effectively anyone born 1971 to today, we have lived our life in a prohibition, we just didn't know it. We had heard about the alcohol prohibition growing up, but nobody told me, oh, there's also a drug prohibition. Um, that's for our own good. We, we we saw the just say no commercials and here's yeah. your mind and here's your mind on drugs. And it's gonna fry this egg and stay away. But, um, but nobody said, oh, but before this, there were thousands of papers on the effectiveness and safety of psychedelic medicine. I didn't know that. I didn't know LSD alone for alcoholism is like a thousand papers. That's a lot. So then in the late 90s, there started to be a, 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 a crack in the door 
where some of the academic institutions started to be able to study um, psychedelics again, and it slowly has gained momentum. Um, we're seeing group like, groups like Johns Hopkins in Maryland just doing incredible research. But today, there are over 300 academic institutions actively studying psychedelic medicine. I live in um, North Carolina, so what, and if I go to the left, I get to University of North Carolina where Dr. Brian Roth's uh, lab in the School of Medicine just received a $27 million grant from the Department of, uh, effectively the Department of Defense to try to remove the hallucinogenic property from a, a couple of the compounds. And then he's working with at my school to the right, which is Duke, with the professor from there as part of the team. So Duke and UNC are playing nicely together in this, yeah, uh, in this, in this particular <laughs> arena. doesn't normally happen. Um, but so there's all sorts of papers from really well-established academic institutions here. And then you can look overseas, Imperial College of London, King's College London, um, schools in Scandinavia, Australia, um, all throughout Europe are studying this as well. So the research is just piling on right now in terms of the, and again, it's not a panacea. It doesn't work for everybody. That's not what we're saying, but it works for a lot of people on an incredibly wide variety of different um, challenges that people have in addition to the spiritual connection component. Yeah. Well, and that kind of leads into, so what would you say to somebody? I'm just thinking about like some of the, some of the arguments or maybe hesitancies that I've heard, especially around, we'll talk about microdosing in a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. but using these substances is that you're whoever takes the substance, right. Is in a sense making them, maybe this is not correct. And this is just the, the perception, but they're making themselves vulnerable to the inputs of let's say whoever's in the room that's not on these uh or has not taken the substances and don't you place yourself at risk if you were to take a psychedelic in the room you know in the in the presence of somebody who's got maybe nef nefarious motives and they convince you to i don't know sign over your your will or, or whatever you know whatever they take some uh -huh. kind of advantage of you like how how big of a risk is that really and um, I guess what kind of mitigation would be in place in something like this where you're you're taking people that are, you know, for for lack of a better word, bru bruised and broken people with PTSD, sexual trauma, you're making them vulnerable taking these drugs, like what kind of protections need to be in place or should be in place or maybe already are in place. And it's just a big misconception. Love this question. I think it's super important for people who are new to psychedelics to really think about this. So there's three S's that we talk about, source, set, and setting. So source is where did, if you're going to take a psychedelic, where did your drugs come from? Yeah. Um, are Hopefully you sure they are? Alley, right? think they are? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Actually, you know, it's fascinating. There was a, um, a relatively recent study on MDMA where they, where these scientists bought a bunch of street drugs and something like 50% had zero MDMA in it. Um, <laughs> Uh, and a chunk had fentanyl and a chunk had ketamine, but it wasn't what people thought. Maybe a third was, but that's a, it can be dangerous. And that's, uh, it is a challenge in our country because we don't have a open dialogue on drugs. Yeah. So people are forced to buy underground and it leads to thousands and thousands and thousands of people dying every year. And, uh, and it's awful. And, and let's not even get into the whole, how many people are incarcerated? What does it cost our yeah. society? We've chosen to spend money on law enforcement and a war on drugs instead of on education, enlightenment, uh, self-confidence, uh, self trauma reduction, all the things that would, uh, would help people not to take drugs recreationally. Um, 
So anyhow, source becomes the first one. So if you're going to a licensed ketamine uh, professional, a doctor in your area, then you know your source is a pharmacy-grade ketamine. Great. Okay. If you're not going to that type of uh, experience and you're going to do a an underground ceremony of some sort, yeah, find out where are they getting their medicine? Are they testing it? Do you really know what they have that it's pure? So let's put that in a bucket. That's your source. Okay. Your set refers to your mindset. Has whoever you're working with first done some type of medical screening to make sure that you're not taking anything else or have any family history that would make you not a good candidate? Um, so that you know, okay, there's nothing physically that should be challenging with this experience. And then have they told me, what am I going to take? How long is it going to last? Um, have they prepared me and what is my intention going into this? Those types of questions, that's all you're set so that you go into it in the mindset of, I know what I'm doing, I'm prepared for this, and I'm prepared for what might what I might experience, and uh, and I'm ready. I want to do this. Great. Yeah. Just uh, Which, wait, before sorry, we move on to the next S, what yeah. might be one of those things that is like a red flag? Is it like drug interactions or like what, what would yeah. keep somebody from not being a good candidate for something like this? On the family history side, what's what's typically said is, okay, if you have a history of schizophrenia, okay, this is yeah, probably not a great um, yeah. thing. If you have a history of psychotic breaks, mm, it's probably not the right medicine. Bipolar, there's not a lot of research. If you're in a manic state, it's not the right time. But if you're in kind of a normal or depressive state, uh, there are a number of people who who work in this. Um, and then that, so that's on the family history. On the uh, on the drug interactions, it really depends on, like for instance, if you're taking an SSRI, you can yeah. take ketamine. That's great, but you might not. You half of the population can take psilocybin and have a good experience. Half doesn't really feel anything. If you're taking an MAOI, a lot of psychedelics have pretty strong interactions, can be really, really dangerous. And then there's a whole variety of things. And that's where having a medical intake reviewed by ideally a medical professional and that for that particular step is uh is pretty important. You don't wanna you don't wanna Yeah, don't exactly. Wanna you don't wanna do something that's gonna set you on the bad no. course. Okay. And then what's the final S here? Hang on really quickly. Um, okay. on that, if you're curious and you want to have a medical opinion, there is a there is a uh, a gentleman out there, Dr. Ben Malcolm, uh, who goes the spirit pharmacist or spiritpharmacist.com. And he will do a medical consult with you no matter where you are in the country and say, okay, show me, tell me all the medicines you're taking. What are you thinking about doing? He's not telling you to go do anything, but okay, I'm thinking about doing ayahuasca and these are the medicines I'm on. Okay. And he'll talk you through it. And this is a report and this is the risk. And this is what you need to do if you want to do it. So a spirit pharmacist is a, is a good resource that's out there. The final S is setting. So this relates to where are you physically going to be when you take this, this medicine? How many people are going to be with you? What is the philosophy or the religious ideology of the person, if there is one of the person who's leading that ceremony? What is their experience doing this? Um, do you know you're not going to be interrupted? Do you know you're safe? Do you know if you have to go to the bathroom that there's someone there who's going to help you go from point A to point B so that you don't fall? Um, those are all the setting things. And what research shows that if you have source, set, and setting all dialed in, the probability of a good experience of, of, a, of, a, of a positive experience is pretty high. Um, but when you're missing one of those items, it can be, it cannot, it cannot be ideal. So to your point, if you have somebody there who has not 
ideal motives, um, where he's going to take advantage of you in a vulnerable state. Yeah, that's that's not a good setting um, to be in. And it is, you are effectively incapacitated for this experience. So knowing that you have trust in your provider and in the people around you is super, super important. Yeah. So I'm, I'm assuming then like the way this works, it's not like you go in for a consult on Tuesday and you're having one of these experiences on Friday. It's probably one of those things that over time, over maybe the the course of a therapeutic relationship, you get to the point where, okay, we've talked about this. We've gotten, you know, we've built up whatever kind of rapport or trust needs to be in place, both for the provider, but then also for the the person who's going to have this experience. Right. And then at that point, then it's okay to proceed as opposed to trying to rush, rush it. Right. <laughs> now you don't want to rush. I do think, and I'm going to go back to ketamine. Um, ketamine is something that you, if, if you've gotten to the point where I don't want to take an antidepressant for the, and we can talk about that if we want to, or um, I've given up on antidepressants and I am found my way to, to a ketamine doctor. In many cases, they will, they will do a medical intake and say, you know what? Okay. This is, this is your preparation work in this intention setting. And here's your medicine in two days, go ahead and do your first journey. Cause you're talking about a one hour ish journey, 40 yeah. minutes. If it's IV an hour, if it's sublingual, that's about what we're talking about. So it can be relatively quick, um, for your first psychedelic journey with ketamine. You're typically going to take six journeys within three, four, six weeks on the outside, something like that. And then after that, you'll decide if for you, you need to do this anymore. That's how most doctors prescribe it. Um, and then after maybe, because it's not like an antidepressant where you're going to take this now every day for the rest of your life. Yeah. It's a, which again, that shouldn't be like that either, but it's a, it might be, okay, I'm going to do this once a month, once a quarter. Um, only when I have triggering events, it's, it's a different experience. When we talk about underground psychedelic experiences again, different than ketamine, um, you probably have gotten word of mouth. You've probably talked to somebody who said, oh, I had this incredible experience with this facilitator and they're doing another retreat on this date. And, um, and then you, it's, do you already have someone that you're working with as a therapist or a coach? Um, if not, does that underground facilitator have those services? And, and then you figure out what's next and what's right for you. Okay. Awesome. Um, Moving on then, because you said it's going to take <clears throat> this journey is going to be what 40 minutes to an hour. It's not going to be super, super long. I'm assuming dosing plays a huge role in this, obviously, the, the type of substance as well. So uh, one thing that you you mentioned here in the book, too, is, is micro dosing. So why don't you tell us a little bit? I mean, it's, it's in the name, but what do we mean by micro dosing? What is sure. it and kind of what are what are some common protocols and, and maybe um, yeah, I guess just give us kind of a high level overview of microdosing. We'll kind of dive in from there. So when people talk about microdosing, they're talking about what's referred to as either a subperceptual or sub intoxicating amount of the drug. So maybe one tenth to one twentieth of a traditional dose. So little that you effectively can go about your day as if you didn't do it. You can drive, you can work, you can play with the kids, all those kinds of things. If you, if you dialed it in correctly. Um, so this is not like what we were just describing. This is a completely different thing. Then. Completely okay. different animal. Yes. So microdosing is, um, many people do it because they feel that it adds connectivity. It makes them, um, 
it makes the blue skies bluer, the gray skies less gray. It helps with uh, with focus. There's a number of reasons. Research is split on this. There's some okay. research that says, ah, it's basically a placebo. And there's other research that says, no, no, it's not. Just look at what it's doing here. The more the last couple research uh, studies have come out are more on the positive side, but something to be aware of. Um, typically, people are microdosing with either psilocybin, magic mushrooms, or LSD, but people microdose with a whole bunch of things. Those are the two most common. And then there's really two ways to microdose. So there's the Dr. Fadiman uh, protocols and the Paul Stamets, the famous um, mushroom expert mycologist, uh, his protocol. So one, the Fadiman protocol says this, take it on day one, it's still in your body on day two, day two. it's going to flush out of your body on day three and take it again on day four. One, skip, skip, four. Um, and then every four weeks or so, take a couple weeks off. So that's what he recommends. And he's he is a, an expert in this and has written the psychedelic handbook and just a really brilliant man. Uh, Paul Stamets, also a brilliant man, says, eh, that's complicated. Why don't we why don't you take it four days in a row and then take off for three days? And just like uh, Fadiman, every four weeks, take a couple weeks off. The other difference between what Paul Stamets is recommending and what Fadiman recommends is Stamets says, and it's even better if you add to your mushrooms, your magic mushrooms, add some lion's mane and add some niacin. And the combination of those three substances together will do extra things for your cognition, dexterity, and all sorts of things. So those are the two um, primary methods of microdosing. If anyone wants this, by the way, I have a free guide to microdosing on my website. If they just go to mattzeman.com, they can just download the microdosing guide. Um, but it's also certainly, of course, in the book. So uh, they can they can do it that way as well. Yeah. Okay. And <clears throat> so I guess I was mistaken on the the differences. Like I've, I've just never really explored microdosing at all. So it is something completely different than going on a journey, using it to kind of mind altering. And I guess the reason people would, would choose microdosing might be different than somebody that's that's going through PTSD and is treatment resistant PTSD, right? I guess, are we talking like performance enhancement? Is there some kind of like pull in that arena? Like, oh, if you want to be a more effective entrepreneur or business owner, or maybe even athlete or something like that, then you explore microdosing? Or is this one of those, I guess, open open my eyes. Why why might people shoot for 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 microdosing or begin exploring it? Yeah, I think the, I think the theory came out of, I think, um, came out of this. Okay. If I know a macro dose can do all these things for me, what if I just take a little bit regularly? Does that keep this momentum going? So that could be, there could be a, a medicalization reason. Hey, I don't want to do yeah. antidepressants, but I think if I microdose, I can, uh, I can achieve a similar effect or there's a, there's a human, a biohacking is what I would call it camp. Okay. That's like, okay, I want to optimize me and yeah. this is a way to optimize. Okay. I get that. Um, the macro dosing, when you're talking about a full on psychedelic journey, that also can be approached there. Again, the medical, I have depression, I have anxiety, I have a substance use challenge and I want to work on it. Boom. It can be the religious approach. I want to have a different, deeper relationship with my higher power and by macro dosing, I can get there. And then there's the decriminalization movement, which says, you know what? It doesn't matter. It should all be legal. You shouldn't, you shouldn't, you can't make plants illegal. Therefore it should be legal and let, let adults figure out what they want to do as adults. 
I get all three camps. They all make sense to me. Yeah. Well, and I guess, so there's really no way to decouple this, I guess, and in, in maybe in my mind and people that are, that might be listening, but you've brought it up a couple of times, like the, the decriminalization movement and, and not to throw drug culture, like under the bus, but like it is pretty linked. So I guess like for people that are involved on the health side of things, maybe they're licensed clinicians, maybe mm-hmm. they're treating people that might, it's not their area of specialization, but maybe their clients or their patients are um, exploring or bringing up in, in treatment sessions that they're exploring psychedelics and beginning to use them. That has a lot of baggage, right? Like a lot of, oh, are you getting involved in underground movements and and the drug culture and, and all of that? So are they, and you've referenced studies in the past. So what kind of um, resources are out there, maybe for clinicians who don't have any experience in this at all, maybe they're hearing about it from patients and their first initial instinct is, oh, whoa, let's, let's put the brakes on here. Um, are there resources out there and available that are, you know, evidence-based that have good, you know, scientific rigor and that we can point to and say, okay, this isn't like a case study of Rafi in his closet doing, you know, psilocybin or something like that. Like this is, this, this has some integrity to it and and it's, and it's published and peer reviewed and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I, I have a lot of sympathy for, I mean, all the clinicians because they grew up just like we did with yeah. the, the medical establishment and, and the media and everybody told us these drugs are bad and it's hard to fight against 50 years of propaganda. And it's so weird to think that like when we think about propaganda, like Cuba has propaganda and Russia has yeah. propaganda. And we all think that, oh, wait, we have a lot of propaganda here in this country. Um, so I have a lot of sympathy for, for them. And, I, and the question of like, where can they go get peer-reviewed, evidence-backed data? And there's a number of sources. They can, there's, the, uh, if, again, PubMed alone, if you type in psychedelics, you're going to find, um, and whatever you're looking at, whatever your interest is, psychedelics and autism, psychedelics and substance use, you're going to find lots and lots of peer-reviewed publications from places like Johns Hopkins. And you can read them and you can then decide, um, what does this mean? And that's kind of the point of my book. And if, so I wrote the book, not for that clinician. I wrote the book for the everyman, the person who doesn't have a scientific background, but it was super important to me to make sure all the references were in there. So if we said, um, Ibogaine has a higher risk of cardiac events than traditional antidepressants. So that's a negative. Where did we get that information from? Here's the reference. So if you're looking at Ibogaine and you're curious about cardiac events, you can go find the paper yourself if you want to. And if you're not that kind of reader, that's fine too. Skip past the reference and move on. But I try to do both where anybody can read it, where it's, so it's not too technical, it's not too opinionated, it's not too woo-woo. It's a, it's it's written for everybody. Yeah. I'm a big fan of thick reference <laughs> references in books because I'm I'm one of those people that's like making notes. I'm like, I'm gonna go look at that later. I'm gonna go read <laughs> read that later. Um okay, so we've kind of gotten over the, I guess the maybe even the stigma and how since this is one of those things we're hearing a little bit more of. I've you know, you mentioned biohacking. I remember hearing maybe a couple years ago, um, I can't remember, maybe it was on, maybe it was on Joe Rogan or something. One of these mm-hmm. big popular podcasts, like somebody talking about microdosing LSD and what it's done for them. And, and we, there is some headway where this is making its way more into the mainstream. Um, 
I guess from from a standpoint of every, the everyman who's maybe not a clinician and and just hearing this, um, what are some recommendations you would have when people are beginning to explore the use of psychedelics, whether it be for microdosing or for treating real um, PTSD or, or trauma or something like that? Because I imagine there's a lot of snake oil out there and then there's a lot of um trusted sources <laughs> so to speak right yeah i think that's that's really true i mean I, I think the questions are actually very similar regardless of whether you're going to a legal ketamine provider and i want to quickly correct something oregon and colorado both have ballot initiatives that have passed that have decriminalized a number of psychedelics and created the framework for a legalized psychedelic um medical industry in their states so when oh, okay. I say that ketamine is the only legal, it's the only legal across the country, but Oregon is already up and running with this medical model and Colorado is, um, they have a two year window to figure out the rules to play before their medical model kicks in. But it's exciting to see states passing ballot initiatives to say our citizens need access to these medicines. Um, oh my gosh, I just lost track of the question. So we were, uh, what was the question? Somebody that's, that's just kind of getting exposed that's to right. this, like, how do you tease out what's snake oil and what's tried and true or something to be, that's trustworthy, right? So I think the first question that you would ask the provider, whoever, so legal or illegal, is what's your experience? How long have you been doing this? Um, what's the medicine? Um, why do you believe in whatever medicine that you're saying that we're going to use? And they should point you to, okay, I'm ketamine and go to um, this website to the science page and read all you want about ketamine and educate yourself. Um, or I, I'm promoting psilocybin and these are the benefits and here's where you can go to read about psilocybin for whatever purpose. Asking how many people am I going to do this with? So sometimes at the higher end, um, experiences, yeah, you might have a one-on-one -on -one session with a, uh, a therapist or one and two. Sometimes they have two people in the room. Okay. That's, that's exciting. Um, but many people think group is actually the better way to have these experiences. And then it's just a definition of what's a good group size. So some people believe it should be under 10 or under 20. Others say, ah, 40. And we'll have this many facilitators per person. And then there are, there are um, larger popular um, psychedelic retreats that have 80 to 100. Oh, wow. Not saying anyone is wrong or anyone's right, but just at least ask the question so that you can decide what's right for you. Um, what's your, going to be your staff to participant ratio and whatever I'm doing. Do you have a medical plan in case there's an adverse event? Let me just jump on that for a second. Yeah. Psychedelics as, as a medicine are relatively very, very safe. There's, there's not a lot of um, physiological things that can happen to you. There's no lethal dose of mushrooms as an example. Yeah. You're not going to stop obligate. breathing or something because of it. Yeah. Typically that's, that's not the issue. The issue is just life happens, period. People have heart attacks and trip and fall and all sorts of things happen during life. And it's just more complicated if life happens while you're on a illegal substance um, or while you're in an alternate, uh, a non-ordinary state of consciousness. So having somebody there who is a sober participant, so should something go wrong, they can help you. And that something going wrong can be a, oh, I didn't realize I had to go to the bathroom to, I got sick to something more severe. So what's the plan if something goes wrong is a great question to ask. Um, and then we talked about source and, and then are there, what are the, what are the rules for participation? Is there, is there a philosophy 
that I'm signing up for with this? So those are the types of questions I would ask going into, regardless of whether you're going to a legal practitioner or an illegal. There are legal practitioners who believe it's purely biochemical. No, they're going to say, no, you come in, I'm going to put an IV in you. We're going to have a, take your vitals. We're going to monitor you. We're going to let you afterwards stay here for a while. And then you're on your own. And again, that's just their belief. That's their practice. And there's others that say, oh, no, 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 no. You start with three sessions in advance of preparation therapy or of guidance. We do an intentional exercise. You come into this experience, you go through the experience. And then uh, the day after you meet and we integrate the experience and then you do three other sessions following that. Okay. That's their philosophy. So know what you're buying because the price is not necessarily changing based on the amount of services you get. It's definitely yeah. a buyer beware of, or in buyer, just be aware yeah. of, uh, of what you're looking for. Yeah. And I'm assuming there are, there are like studies, right. That would break down maybe the difference between kind of what you just laid out where the, we're going to do some sessions beforehand. We're going to do a couple, maybe one experience and then integrate it afterwards versus all over. Like you said, PubMed probably has thousands of articles, thousands, but there, there's no protocols. Yeah. The research is pretty clear that the best outcomes come with a combination of, um, preparation, the psychedelic experience and integration and the integration can vary in how it's delivered, but that's, that's where the best outcomes. Can you have just a, a biochemical reaction and make it work? Sure. Of course you can. Um, but we're talking about how do we increase the likelihood of success for whatever it is that's drawing you there. This is the best practice that research shows over and over. And Johns Hopkins, again, you keep coming back to them because they've just published so much yeah. on, um, best practices for, um, psychedelic experiences. Awesome. Cool deal. Well, um, we're getting near the bottom here. So Matt, thanks so much for taking the time. This is one of those areas where you know, they didn't teach us about this in school. So I might have more questions now than before, <laughs> before, um, if there are just one or two main takeaways you'd want a listener to walk away with from the show, um, maybe they're a clinician or they run a, a small private practice. Um, and they're they're maybe they're hearing their patients talk about psychedelics or they've come across it and they're they're kind of curious. What are one or two main takeaways you'd want them to know after listening to this? I would love them to walk away saying, Okay, I didn't realize that I've been fed propaganda for 50 years. And so that maybe my beliefs about drugs mm, might be worth exploring a little bit more deeply. Okay, so that's step one. And then step two is. I don't need to think that I need to take a psychedelic to understand how psychedelics might be helpful to others. So if I can separate myself from my belief about this woo boogeyman psychedelic and say, Hmm, okay, I can see how it could help this person or that person, this person I love or this society as a whole that can impact how I vote, how I talk about mental health, how I think, how I, how I look at somebody who I hear has taken a psychedelic. Um, we have a lot of, uh, we have 50 years of, of information inside of us and it's, it's just a different way of thinking. And I would just hope that people would come away a little bit open-minded to at least explore this, even if it's not for them specifically to take one is what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Matt, thanks so much. Where can people, I know you, we mentioned the book, we mentioned the website, but mention it again so people can find you. Where can people find you, find the book, um, book you for speaking engagement or, or whatever you, you happen to have. Sure, I appreciate that. So mattzeman.com is my website. Um, there's a speaking forum and lots of videos on different psychedelics are on the, on that, the, the free guide to microdosing. 
Um, and then I'm, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and on Instagram. So, uh, and I'm here to serve. So if somebody has a question, I'm accessible, reach out and I'll do my best to get back to you in a reasonable amount of time and, and, uh, see if I can answer that question. Awesome. And the book is book is anywhere books are sold. And then there is the audio book. So for people who don't want the physical and they just want to listen, um, the, the audible or, or iTunes store, all those have the, uh, the audio book now. Yeah. And the book is called psychedelics for everyone. Correct. That is it. All righty. I'm willing to all that in the show notes. So Matt, thanks so much. Have a good one. Rafi. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation again, kind of somewhat off the beaten path here for us recently at the better outcome show, but I think every now and then it's good to have a conversation that challenges some of your biases, your preconceived notions about a specific topic. Not that I am entirely persuaded or swayed as a result of this conversation, but it did open up my eyes to some of the, the findings from research, some of these organizations and institutions that are completing research in this space. So I thought it was a decent um, conversation to have that kind of opened up the groundwork, if you would, for further dialogue or further thinking on my own part in this space. Again, I'm not involved in daily clinical practice all that much, and I don't intend on using psychedelics, but it was a good uh, exercise in exploring an idea without necessarily adopting it yourself, right? Um, and I do think that Matt did a, a good job in our conversation of being very explicit about the risks that are involved, the precautions that need to be taken. Some of those, like I alluded to earlier, some of those institutions and organizations that are involved in researching this topic in particular. Um, and I thought it was just a good a good exercise in ha in having a conversation. I'm, the the whole reason I started this podcast was to have interesting conversations with people that were doing things that were innovative in the healthcare space in the healthcare field. And uh, pushing the boundaries in psychedelics is definitely one of those things that, that fit the bill. Anyways, moving on, what we've got lined up over the next couple weeks, we will be wrapping up conversations with folks who have either uh, built, sold, and or exited physical therapy or occupational therapy private practices, kind of what that looks like, the things that were taken into consideration in the valuation and the the reasons maybe for exiting in the first place. We'll talk a little bit about some entrepreneurship. And then we're starting a new series here, probably in the next two or three episodes, specifically on the topic of technological innovation in the healthcare space around uh, remote patient monitoring, virtual telehealth, uh, asynchronous and synchronous, and then patient engagement platform. So we're going to, we've been on the, on the, uh, the prowl trying to find good guests that are doing interesting things in this space, specifically around patient engagement, improving clinical outcomes, humanizing the healthcare process through technology. In the book that I wrote, Better Outcomes, A Guide to Humanizing Healthcare, one of my big points that I made in the chapter on making the human presence and connection felt was that sometimes we take technology and we implement it in the healthcare process as a way of streamlining efficiency or improving workflows or maybe even improving efficiency in the in the service delivery itself. But what ends up happening is the as a byproduct, an unintentional consequence, is that 
it abstracts patients or makes them become abstractions in our mind as clinicians or adds an undue barrier to the forming of a strong therapeutic relationship or bond between the clinician and the patient. So what we're trying to do in this next little series, which might take, I don't know, if, uh, several episodes, given the amount of interviews we've already got piled up on this or, or lined up and scheduled, how do we take technology, because we know we need it, and we know it has benefits both on the revenue side for the organizations, but then also on the clinical outcomes and patient engagement side, how do we take these technologies, these tools, these platforms, and implement them in practice in a way that strengthens the human interaction or the human impact of the healthcare encounter. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, if you are interested in staying up to date, find us on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, all the places you find podcasts, subscribe, download, do all the good things. If you want to be notified when we drop episodes, head on over to betteroutcomes.show. Sign up to the form there. We'll shoot you an email every time we release an episode with show notes and links to the uh, guests, contact information and resources and all of that kind of thing. And if you happen to be in the physiotherapy or the musculoskeletal space and you have developed or you are bringing to the market some sort of tool or device or technology, some platform, and you're looking for a way to specifically tailor that offering for physiotherapists. I'd love to have a talk with you. We are in the middle of launching what we're calling the Market Penetration Roadmap, specifically for healthcare technologies and SaaS companies, helping them say the right thing to the right healthcare audience. So if you are looking at branching into the physiotherapy space, the musculoskeletal space with a tool or technology, and you want some positioning strategy around that, specifically for the, the targeted stakeholder that you've identified. We've talked about it before in the past, but there's four stakeholders in healthcare. There's the patient, the provider, the payer, and the policymaker, and they each value different things in a tool or technology or a piece of software. So if that is something you want to explore, head on over to strategy.rehabupracticesolutions.com. Read a little bit about what we've got and uh, book a call. I'd love to have a conversation with you. Until the next time, folks, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to The Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.